Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. A dispensation is a way of ordering things, an administration, a system, or a management. In theology, a dispensation is the divine administration of a period of time. Each dispensation is a divinely appointed age. Dispensationalism is a theological system that recognizes these ages ordained by God to order the affairs of the world. Dispensationalism has two primary distinctives, a consistently literal interpretation of scripture, especially Bible prophecy, and a view of the uniqueness of Israel as separate from the church and God's program. And Rick, on today's program, we're going to cover dispensationalism, and we are going to look at the uniqueness of Israel. We've got our broadcast partners standing by. Let's get started with Ken Timmerman. Well, that's right, Jimmy. I've got Ken Timmerman with me. He is our guest. He talks about geopolitical affairs, everything that's taking place around the world. Ken, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Rick. It's a pleasure to greet you today from the south of France. Ken, we'll start with the Russia-Ukraine crisis and some truly surprising remarks from the head of the Wagner Group. Uh, you know, Yevgeny Prigozhin uh, never ceases to astonish me. Here is a man who is the head of a private military uh, company, a, basically a private army fighting the toughest battles of the war in Ukraine. This is the group that went and fought in the trenches, literally in the trenches and house by house and Bakhmut to retake Bakhmut, which the Ukrainians had decided they were going to make an all out effort to keep. And the Wagner group went in and took it. Prigozhin said that they lost 20,000 people killed, half of them former Spetsnaz troops and another half uh, Russians that were recruited out of prison. But that's not the astonishing thing. What's, what's the truly astonishing thing here, Rick, is to listen to Prigozhin in this hour-long interview he gave to an internet blogger. It was a, it was a kind of radio-type interview where he just slashed and burned at the Russian military leadership. I was reading this and just kind of shaking my head and wondering how he gets away with this stuff. He didn't say to kind of make it clear we need new military leadership. He just said, simply, we need new leadership. In other words, the mm. implication there, it could also include Putin. Very, very dangerous thing for somebody to say uh, in Russia. One of the comments he made, Rick, was that Russia has gone about this war completely wrong. Two, the military is fighting miserably. Uh, they, are, they, they are not well trained and the leadership is bad. And he said, even our goal in the beginning, which was to demilitarize Ukraine, has completely backfired. And he said, this is when he made that comment, and he suggested Russia should change the top leadership. Interesting analysis he makes when he talks about this goal of demilitarizing Ukraine. He said in the beginning of the, of the war, let's say they had 500 tanks. Now they have 5,000 tanks, he said. It turned out to be just the opposite of what we wanted to do. We militarized it. We militarized Ukraine to the nth degree. That sounds to me like somebody who's saying this war was a mistake. And the leaders who took it into us need to pay the price. Very dangerous position taking that against Vladimir Putin. We'll see how that turns out. Continuing our stop there in Russia, some more news coming out of the area. Vladimir Putin occasionally seeks to remind us that he has nuclear weapons and he's done that again. Uh, yes, he has. This time, this week, he inked a final deal on the deployment of tactical 
nuclear weapons in neighboring Belarus. It's not that much of a surprise. Putin has been talking about this since March. He says, we're going to do it. Uh, they've already started to train Belarusian fighter pilots to launch tactical nuclear weapons from their aircraft. And they're training people on warhead security as well in the Belarusian uh, armed forces. However, the Russians are making very clear that they have the finger on the nuclear switch, not the Belarusians. And frankly, uh, Rick, in, in my, my book, this is really something that is a political signaling on the part of Putin. It doesn't really change the strategy. Russia has you know, thousands of nuclear warheads, so do we. They can reach us with thousands of them uh, launching from Russia. They don't need to launch from Belarus. But what it does do is warn everybody by bringing these tactical weapons close to the battlefield in Ukraine that this war could get really nasty very quickly if Putin decides it. It does seem like he's fond of sending those nuclear-related messages. Well, we'll move away from Russia, and now we'll go to Turkey. You reported last week that the election there went to a runoff. Is there any new news there? Well, one thing that's happened is that Erdogan has won an endorsement from the person who came in number three with five or six points. That, in theory, should put him over the 50% uh, marker. Remember, he only failed by about half of a percentage point. So if he picks up the support of this guy who had five and a half percent, again, in theory, that should put him over the top. I tend to think that's what's going to happen. Uh, it is a lost opportunity because the opposition in Turkey was pledging to get rid of the presidential system, to de-Islamize the schools, to uh, reinforce relations with Turkey's uh, historical allies. And Erdogan, of course, as we know, is a diehard Islamist. And he is the one who has who has Islamized Turkey over the past 20 years. And so I expect if he is reelected, we're just going to see him get uh, more entrenched, more confident to continue the Islamization and to continue the expansion of Islam worldwide through the Muslim Brotherhood, which he's done through Syria and other places. There was earlier on in his term as Turkey's leader, he faced a coup. And then, of course, now this tough election following the heels of that earthquake, it looks like if he survived this, he's going to survive anything. And he's solidified his grip on Turkey for quite a while to come, hasn't he? I think that's what this is all about. Again, this this he has already been in power for 20 years. Uh, this will give him another you know, five years, I think it is. And there are few challenges to him not at the ballot box. So the only challenge would be military. And at this point, I don't see any rumblings of that. Could change, but I don't see it yet. Well, as we continue to go around the world, we're moved to China. And we certainly do watch China because we know that their growing power, maybe the growing superpower in the world right now. And there's a few stories coming out in the news talking about them being able to hack us and attack our infrastructure. What do you know about that? What I find so uh, interesting and, and intriguing about this, Rick, is the amount of publicity that this story has been getting this week. It was actually broken by the United States government, you know, a spokesman at the State Department and a spokesman at the uh, Cybersecurity Agency both came out on Thursday saying, hey, uh, we have detected a an effort by the Chinese to launch cyber attacks on our critical infrastructure. They're not actually damaging things right now, but what they're doing is looking for ways that they could damage them in the future. And get this, in the context of a conflict where we would need to communicate with our resources in Asia. In other words, 
the invasion of Taiwan. So you have this really very, very public uh, announcement by these two agencies. Uh, another takeaway I think really important is that uh, we learned also uh, it was Microsoft that first spotted the actual Chinese group, not the government. And the government gave credit to Microsoft. So now we're in a position now where you've got every U.S., every major U.S. high-tech company with really sophisticated cybersecurity departments who are watching threats from all across the world. The third thing that leapt out at me, Rick, was the fact that uh, Reuters was able to get the cybersecurity director of the National Security Agency to go on the record to talk about this threat. Now, that's something really quite unusual. If anybody other than the director of NSA to go public is very unusual. So here's a gentleman named Rob Joyce, not a household name, now willing to go public. That's how confident they felt at the NSA with the threat by this uh, Chinese spying group. These are things that we're going to have to consider in a 21st century conflict. Well, let's move to the Middle East. We'll leave China and Russia and we'll move to the Middle East. And we talk here, uh, Saudi Arabia hosting world leaders, including Vladimir Zelensky and Bashir Assad of Syria. Very interesting. This is a new dynamic in the Middle East, isn't it? Yeah, it's a, it's a new world uh, that's being created right in front of our eyes. It's extraordinary to me how quickly things have changed. The U.S., in leaving the Middle East, uh, has created a power vacuum. The Chinese were the first to leap into that by brokering this deal between Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, and the Iranians to resume their political relations and their exchange ambassadors. But the Russians have been there as well. And everybody seems to know America is leaving. America is going home. We are no longer going to preserve the peace in the Middle East. We are no longer going to preserve strategic stability. Everyone uh, is in it for themselves, and they'd better get used to it and make alliances for themselves on the ground. Now, this has had a couple of very interesting uh, consequences. One, you just mentioned those two leaders, Zelensky of Ukraine and uh, Bashar al-Assad of Syria, coming to the Arab League, uh, hosted by Saudi Arabia. But you also have this really growing confidence of the Israeli government. Uh, on Tuesday this week, Bibi Netanyahu held a cabinet meeting in the tunnels uh, so they could, so the cabinet could look at the stones placed there during King Solomon's time in the first mm. temple. And he did it, he said, to send a message to Abu Mazen, who just a few days before that had been at the United Nations saying, well, Israel has no ties whatsoever to the Temple Mount or to East Jerusalem. All of that is Palestinian. And Bibi said, no, no, no. We want Abu, Abu Mazen to know not only are those stones Jewish from King Sol Solomon, but they've been there for 3,000 years. Israel has been there for 3,000 years, and Israel will be here for 3,000 years to come. It was an amazing message, I thought, very important, and something that uh, I would have loved to see get more play in the media here in the West, but there was pretty much radio silence on this. Certainly an amazing interchange and uh, a very strong definitive statement of strength from Benjamin Netanyahu, which is what he's known for. Well, thank you so much. All of these interrelated stories, we went all the way around the world. Ken, we appreciate what you do to educate our listeners. And for our listeners who would like to find out more about Ken Timmerman, you can go to KenTimmerman.com. You can sign up for his newsletter. We welcome you to go there. Ken, thank you so much for joining us from the south of France. 
Thanks so much, Rick, for my little piece of God's paradise. And Ken, that's nothing compared to what God has for us in the future. Well, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk to David Dolan right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Todd Morris for Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Over 100 former world leaders just sent a joint letter to current administrators urging them to get tough in Iran. The letter, addressed to heads of state in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., and more, calls on leaders to support the Iranian people. Execution spiked in May, making it Iran's bloodiest month in the last five years. Pray for God's protection around Transform Iran and its partners as they share the good news of Jesus. This Sunday, May 28th, is the International Day for the Unreached, highlighting unreached people around the world who've never heard the gospel. Unreached people groups make up one-third of the world's population. Greg Kelly with World Mission says the church needs to train and mobilize leaders who can bring the gospel to unreached people in their countries and communities. Pray for missions to the unreached this Sunday and find your place in the story at missionnews.org. A service of One Way Ministries. I'm Dodd Morris. Have you ever wanted to visit Israel and trace the footsteps of Jesus? With Rick and Jim's VIP trips, you'll see Israel past, present, and prophetic. Our VIP trips are typically smaller groups of 8 to 12 people. This smaller group size allows us to spend more one-on-one time answering your questions and personalizing our tour. It is a very intimate experience. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time not to only visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. We can also customize our trip for your family or small group. Please call Joshua Travel today and see how we can make your trip extra special. Call 423-821-3635 or visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. Well, this is our Middle East news update. Each week we have Dave Dolan with us. Dave is a good friend. He was a journalist in Israel for 30 years. Dave, thank you for being with us today. Actually, Rick, 33 years, but I'm glad to be with you. (laughs) I certainly did not mean to sell you short, but you always provide such great information for our listeners. Well, uh, we've got lots of stuff to get to today, so we'll start with an aspect that we cover often, and it's this mounting tension between Israel and Iran that seems to be reaching another level. Can you let us know what's going on? Yes, uh, some serious developments this week even. We had a Hezbollah drone cross into Israeli territory on Thursday. It was brought down by uh, Israeli electronics. They didn't shoot at it. They were able to intercept it and capture it and are looking at it as surveillance drone. And uh, the same day in Tehran, the Iranians unveiled what they called a new version of their ballistic missile, uh, the Kaibar, which is named after the 7th century battle in northern Saudi Arabia today is where it's located, where Muhammad's forces killed and defeated the Jews that were living there 
in the seventh century. So obviously the new missile is directed at Israel. And, you know, it has a range, they say, of 1,200 miles, actually over that and a 1,500 kilogram warhead uh, fitting on top of it. They showed some footage on state TV. They interrupted programming to show it in Iran on Thursday and said it was a successful launch. And it, it, you know, it is within range of all Israeli towns and cities. So that's a great development. And, and accentuating that it is aimed at Israel, they had a mock model of the um, Al-Aqsa Mosque on the Temple Mount in the, the Golden Dome uh, in the shot. So it's aimed at Israel. And we had statements from both Israeli and Iranian leaders during the week about the prospects of war. We have the annual Herzliya Security Conference, where we always have uh, top security officials uh, giving speeches and assessments of the year and what may lie ahead. And this year, the uh, chief of staff, uh, Herzliya Levy, has said that uh, we see possible negative developments on the horizon that could prompt IDF action against Iran uh, due to its uh, escalating nuclear program and, of course, the revelation earlier this year by the UN that some uh, of their uranium has been enriched up to 83%. You need 90% pure uranium to produce a bomb, and it would only take a couple weeks to bring that up to 90%, and they may have, of course, already done it secretly, and we don't know about it. We had revelations this week that they have a new underground nuclear facility that they're building very deep in the earth under a mountain. They already have one. This would be the second one where they can do everything in secret, and it would be beyond the ability of the U.S. or Israel to strike. So very serious developments and more statements from Iranian leaders. They're fighting against the the grave threat to the Middle East, which is Israel. Israel poses this great, well, again, Iran is, you know, almost a thousand miles east of Israel. It's never fought a direct war, full war with Israel. It wasn't involved in 1948, 1967, 1973 uh, in those wars. But then, of course, they formed Hezbollah in 1982. I was in South Lebanon when that happened. The Iranian-backed militia there, and it's grown in power and strength. And uh, there were other warnings this week about Iran's intentions there. And in fact, Rick, on Sunday, Hezbollah staged a mock invasion of northern Israel at one of their bases north of the Israeli border. They invited reporters to it. They had a live fire. They had a helicopter. They had drones. And they had their forces uh, mock an invasion. And they had uh, paper-cut Israeli soldiers and all this sort of thing. So obviously they are saying we're ready for war, and Iran seems to be saying we're ready. And Israeli leaders are saying we may have no other course here but to take on Iran's nuclear program. And even if we have to do it alone, uh, we'll have to do it at some point. And so it, it seems increasingly likely that that's on the horizon. Well, David, you look at the situation, we talk about this often, but Iran unveils a missile, a long-range missile that has the capability of reaching Israel, and they unveil it next to a portrait. You just reported on this, next to a portrait of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is on the Temple Mount there in the city of Jerusalem, a not-so-subtle, <laughs> you know, uh, dig at, at what their goals are. And of course, top Israeli military officials at this conference are saying that uh, Iran is involved in everything around us and with everyone who's against us. So you have the nuclear 
threat, but you also have their funding of all of those proxies that are attacking Israel. This is quickly coming to a head, isn't it? Well, it looks to be. And of course, it comes as Iran has uh, renewed ties with Saudi Arabia. It comes after the Arab League invited Syrian president, uh, dictator really, Assad, to their annual meeting, the first time since the civil war began there over 10 years ago. So he's back in the in the good graces. And of course, he is a basically a puppet of Iran. Iran uh, you know, massing forces there, continuing to resupply Hezbollah very strongly. And as we talked about earlier uh, this year, that they were using these earthquake relief flights to bring in more supplies for Hezbollah. And yes, they, again, they're a thousand miles east of Israel. Israel's never had a war with Iran. They're not Arabs, they're Muslims, but they're from the minority Shiite sect. They have picked this fight against Israel. They came into Lebanon and set up this major force now that has, you know, enormous equipment and, and maybe, you know, 150,000 rockets, we estimate, which is far more than anyone in Gaza has. Uh, there are two puppet forces there. They are stirring the pot. They went into Syria. They've moved their forces down to the Golan Heights area, the northern part of Israel. Etc. So they are the aggressor here, and Israel certainly doesn't want war with Iran, doesn't want to have anything to do with Iran, had very good relations, as we were reminded when the Shah's son, the late Shah's son, went to Israel uh, on Independence Day and spoke before the Knesset and whatever and said we had great relations before these militants came in and took over. And uh, it's, it's a sad state of affairs, but as we've said before, it's prophetic. We know that Persia or Iran will be part of this anti-Israel coalition in the Gog and Magog invasion. At the very least, they'll be part of that. And I expect this uh, clash to come, which is not Armageddon yet, but that it will be a full war between Iran and Israel. Iran says they'll win. They say we have hidden capabilities, but Israel definitely has capabilities that they've never revealed. And I I know of some of them, but I'm not allowed to see. (laughs) Well, when I was a journalist in Israel, I could have been penalized for saying anything about it, but I still respect that, you know, their secrets are secret. And uh, I just had sources that revealed some things to me, but it's it's tense, but it's always been uh, over the past, since 1982, and we've been building to this, but it looks like we're heading towards a crescendo in the next year or two, but we'll see. As you said, David, that uh, clash that is to come is prophetic. We may not be seeing what the Bible says is actually going to happen, but we're seeing what is setting the stage for what is going to come. Well, uh, we look at the political, and it's setting the stage for the prophetic to be fulfilled. These are Sometimes we get in the weeds a little bit with Israeli politics, but these are very important developments that let us know what's going to take place in Israel. Well, Final question. We just have a a few minutes left here. David, we are approaching another Jewish holiday, a feast holiday, Shavuot. Could you tell us a little bit? And I'd like to hear about your, you spent so much time in Israel, so you have some great stories, some great insight into these holidays, how they take place in Israel, and what they mean to us as Christians and prophetically as well. Can you talk to us a little bit about Shavuot? Yes, Rick. It was one of my favorite holidays uh, every year in Israel. It's one of the three pilgrimage feasts where Jews are instructed in the Bible to go up to Jerusalem uh, and worship the Lord there. But unlike Passover and uh, Tabernacles, which are both week-long feasts, 
this is just a two-day feast. It uh, began Thursday night and is ending this evening. And so it's a lot less work, frankly. The wives especially love it because there's a lot less cooking and preparing to do and all the cleaning before Passover isn't part of this. Uh, In fact, traditionally, uh, light meals are eaten, fish is eaten, uh, dairy meals are eaten, and people just relax a little bit more than the other two holidays. But it is, you know, the uh, 50th day after Passover, it always falls there. And uh, that's the counting of the Omer is uh, the 49 days in between the second day of Passover and uh, Pentecost, we call it in English, which means 50 in Greek. Uh, Shavuot, of course, means weeks in Hebrew, and it marks the seven weeks between Passover. And it marks the first harvest, the early harvest. Uh, Most Americans would think, well, it's pretty early in the year for a harvest, but not in Israel. You know, the first harvest is in late May and June, and then uh, there's usually a second in uh, the fall. So it's a happy holiday, and uh, there's lots of conferences and lots of visitings and things going on, and and I I enjoyed it very much every year, and uh, I want to wish a happy um, Shavuot to any uh, of our Jewish listeners today. Well, thank you so much, David. As always, you bring a wide wealth of knowledge and experience to the program. We appreciate it. Thank you for keeping our listeners informed, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Glad to be with you, Rick. God bless. In today's world, a biblical worldview and a proper understanding of biblical prophecy should be a priority. At a time when many false doctrines are entering the church at a frightening pace, we must be able to rightly divide God's Word in order to live a pure and productive life for Him. If you would like an in-depth understanding of biblical prophecy, let me challenge you to consider Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. The School of Prophets is an online study for the layman or student pursuing a master's or doctorate degree. Dr. DeYoung's online study program will allow you to develop a timeline of biblical prophecies of the past, as well as future prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Your personal study of God's Word will only be enhanced by Dr. DeYoung's School of Prophets, and your life will be changed as you better understand, like Daniel, where you fit into God's calendar of events. If you're interested in developing a deeper understanding of God's prophetic Word, let me personally invite you to become involved in Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. Call today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us at schoolofprophets.org. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. This half hour, we've got two good friends, Dr. Rob Congdon and Paul Scharf. First, let's get started with Dr. Rob Congdon. Well, that's right, Jimmy. We have Dr. Rob Congdon with us today. He's been on the program many times before. He's a good friend of ours, has his own ministry, Congdon Ministries International. Rob, thank you for joining us today. Well, it's good to be with you, Rick. Uh, always enjoy it and to be with your listeners each time. Your ministry of Bible teaching is what I think is so important here. And I've been uh, following you and you're signed up for your newsletter. I get your newsletter and I find out what's going on with your ministry. And I know you're doing a series right now on uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39 and God's sovereignty, which I wanted to talk to you about today. But before I do that, can you tell our listeners how they, if they were interested after listening to this program, if they're interested, how they could find out more about your ministry and about this specific class that you're teaching online right now? Well, sure. If they just go to the internet and go to cmi-tv.net. 
Well, thank you for that. And we do appreciate your ministry so much. You know, we talk about current events here on this program a lot, but you know, our real heart, our real focus is teaching the Bible, specifically Bible prophecy, but in general, the correct interpretation and looking at scripture. That's something that your website does. And this new venture, the Classes for Bereans, excellent, excellent resource for our listeners. Well, we'll start in the the message that you have is titled The Sovereignty of God as seen in Ezekiel 38 and 39. That's the one I was going to be talking about today. But before you started, you kind of gave a little preamble where you explained that these few chapters here in Ezekiel, God puts the bookends of Ezekiel. Can you tell us what you meant by the bookends of Ezekiel? Right. Um, they're actually sort of bookends of time. Uh, when you get to, as you go through all of Ezekiel, you come to chapter 36, and that to the end of the book is significant end-time Latter-day events. And I've said that they're like two bookends, A to Z, if you will, because in 36, God starts speaking to Israel, and he's saying, here's your future, Israel, in the latter days. And he begins, really, in Ezekiel 38 with the battle of Gog Magog, which I believe the Bible teaches is going to occur between the rapture and the start of the tribulation. Now, I don't have any problem with somebody who says no Gog-Magog battle will occur right after the start of the tribulation. That's not the issue. The issue is that all of the tribulation events will begin, really, with this battle of Gog-Magog. And therefore, that's the A of the bookend. And then when you get to the end of Ezekiel, you've gotten to the end of the millennium. And so that's the Z, the other bookend. So in between, you basically, Ezekiel gives you an overview from the beginning of the tribulation to the end of the millennium. And I find it very significant because his emphasis is on the millennium to give Israel the hope that, yes, Israel will exist not only until the end of the millennium, but on into eternity. And so God wants his people of Israel to know that when they're in exile in the Babylonian captivity, that's when Ezekiel wrote, that there is a future for the nation of Israel and for those people's descendants to come. One day, God will be working with them. And so it's an exciting study, and many people focus in on the details of the Battle of Gog Magog, and I do that. I, I have a five-hour series on that of videos. But what I was noticing as I studied it that really 38 and 39 seem to focus in reality on the sovereignty of God. And I found it so fascinating that God would give three prophetic messages to a pagan, unsaved Gog who's going to come and attack Israel. So that's how I got into this study on the sovereignty of God in Ezekiel. We talk on this show very often about those specific details and about the countries that are in 38 and 39, but I did think it was very interesting the way you talk about these three specific messages that uh, Ezekiel gives to Gog, that God gives to Gog as he talks about his sovereignty and an example of that. Can you tell us a little bit about these messages and how they demonstrate God's sovereignty? Well, yes. Uh, by the way, sovereignty is a key issue in many churches today, and I thought this was a beautiful passage to really explain his sovereignty. The first part of the first message, if you will, to Gog from Ezekiel was that God's sovereign rule extends beyond Israel to all the nations of the world. Now, remember, in the days of Ezekiel, each country thought they had their own gods. And so there were multi-gods, and one god might be viewed as being more powerful than another god. And so here Ezekiel's 
uh, uh, Israel is in exile. So to the Babylonians, they could say their God was more powerful than the God of Israel. But the first message to Gog, a pagan, which I always stress, <laughs> unsaved, is that no God is also sovereign over that ruler, Gog, and over his country also. And it was really the first step to start correcting the world's view of the gods, little g's, of the world and knowing just the true God of the Bible. Then the next message that Ezekiel gave from God to Gog was that God's sovereign purposes include the saved or righteous people and the unrighteous, unsaved people of the world as well. He's not just the God of the saved. He's the God of all the creation and all the people of the creation. I thought that was really very enlightening to view it from the people of Ezekiel's time who would wonder, you know, whose God is the God? And then the final message by Ezekiel was to Gog, in which he says that whatever God says he will do, he will do. He'll accomplish it. Because our God is the sovereign, almighty, most high God. And so Gog will then demonstrate that by having his army decimated and actually his own city of Magog burned. And so the sovereignty really expands your view of the God of the Bible. And then a key element, which if you wish we can talk about, is the fact that Gog still has a free will. And so there's a unique balance between the sovereignty of God and the free will of men. Well, I would like to talk about that just a little bit more, but I also want to go back and in watching the video, I thought it was interesting. As you look at God's sovereignty, he has, from the very beginning, had a plan. And even before the Garden of Eden, he had a plan. But, you know, Dad had a saying, and it was, uh, plan your work and then work your plan. That's what he always used to say. And when he said, work your plan, he was thinking, well, you as you start to plan, you know, you might need to make changes because things come up that you didn't foresee. Well, that's not the way God's sovereignty works. It was very interesting to me when you were talking about in this program, God, from the beginning of time and throughout, uh, and from Genesis all the way through Revelation, his plan has been consistent. He was never surprised by anything that has taken place and never will be surprised, correct? Oh, absolutely correct. In fact, that's why I have at the top of my website, Connecting the Dots. Uh, when I'm teaching, I'm showing how Genesis to Revelation it's all been God's plan, and his purpose is to call out a, a righteous people to be part of the kingdom that Jesus Christ will rule over, and in eternity, God the Father and Jesus Christ will rule over, and how it all flows, and God never says, uh-oh, how did that happen? Where, where did this guy come from? What, look at the problem he's causing. No, God had it all planned, and so from Adam God didn't say, oh my, what did Adam do? How can I correct this? God already knew what he was going to do when man sinned. And I think people in our world today are very ill at ease. I think the Generation Z is so insecure because God has been so driven out of their culture that they no longer feel this security in knowing that there is a God in control. And so I think the whole concept of God's sovereignty is crucial to helping people in a very insecure world recognize that above it all and beyond it all is a God who's deeply involved down to the individual person. And 
And that's really a message we as Christians need to get out, is that God cares about all people, loves them, and this is all part of his purposes, and it's up to the individual in their free will to decide whether they want to work with God and and know him and fellowship with him or not. But it's exciting to me when I look through Genesis to Revelation, and each Sunday I teach an adult class, and we've been going through that and the young adults in the class are really getting excited because it's showing them yes god is in control well i know for me and i'm not necessarily gen z but i understand exactly the sentiments you're saying there and for me it is such a uh, it gives me such a a sense of calm and a sense that you know that god is in control from the very beginning and that is why this subject of sovereignty is so important and 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 from our view that's why the study of bible prophecies is so important we see the certainty of past fulfilled prophecies. We know the certainty of future fulfilled prophecies. Well, you alluded to a subject. You talked a little bit earlier about the sovereignty uh, question in our church today and a little bit about free will. Could you explain why this subject is an important one that we as Christians get right? Well, yes. We, We need to understand that as Christians and biblical Christians, that we're not merely robots or puppets that a God is pulling the strings on through all of history. We need to realize that when we were created, all mankind, in the image of God, one aspect of that image that God granted was a free will. And that is a tremendous gift from God because it says that we are responsible for things we do, how we think, how we act. And yet God, being sovereign, in allowing us that free will has set limits on how far we can go on any of the aspects that we would go on. And for a Christian, he tells us, for instance, we'll never be tempted beyond what we are able to bear. And we don't have to give in to the temptation. So God does set boundaries. But within that free will, it's a tremendous gift of God because it makes us intelligent beings who have real purpose in life And part of that purpose is to understand what God's will is for us personally and then to make that freedom of choice saying, yes, God, I want to follow your will. And as I said, there's sometimes in history God has stepped in with some people who he tried to get them to see something and they didn't want to see it and they didn't want to see it. And finally God says, no, now's the time I'm coming face to face with you and are you ready to do my will? And a good example of that is the Apostle Paul. God reached out to Paul many times, but in the end, Paul had to make the decision when he saw Jesus Christ to accept him and then to do his will and would continue so through the rest of his life. So again, I guess I keep stressing the the younger uh, people, the generations, uh, X, Y, Z, if you will, uh, they don't see, not only are they insecure today, but they don't understand there can be real purpose in life and direction in life by a God who doesn't make them a robot, but a God who gives them a self-will and God guides that will and they can pick and choose whether they obey it. And at some point he has limits how far he will allow them. But what a a tremendous gift. Uh, I think many religions of the world are almost fatalistic and saying that you really have no choice. What will be, will be. God determines that, and you have no choice. No, 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 that's wrong. And Calvinism today, a whole group of Calvinists are saying, basically, God's 
making you a robot and determines what tie you wear on the day and what socks you put on. That's not the God of the Bible. He's given us a tremendous gift of freedom within his guidelines, and to follow his word is the way we can succeed in life and have real purpose. So I think it's exciting when you study sovereignty and you see this balance of free will and God's power and sovereignty. What an exciting thing to be a Christian. Certainly is, and what a timely message from the book of Ezekiel. Well, well, Dr. Rob Congdon, as always, we appreciate your ministry. We appreciate your uh, ability to educate our listeners, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. I always look forward to it and enjoy being able to hear from your listeners, too. May the Lord bless them and you. We really appreciate you guys. Well, Rick, Dr. Rob Congdon always gives us information. We love having him on. He was a favorite. He still is a favorite, actually, giving us information about the nations of Ezekiel 38 coming together and how that all plays out. Again, we focus on uh, what we know to be true in God's Word, Bible prophecy. And a lot of people always say it's really hard to understand it, but really, if you use the proper study methods, uh, proper hermeneutics and and uh, understanding God's word and setting your mind and your heart, humbling your heart as Daniel did. The prophet Daniel, he humbled himself before the Lord. And I think that is so very key. And uh, of course, uh, with broadcast partners that we trust and giving us information, uh, it really does help the body of Christ to understand. Well, our next guest is no stranger to the program. If you're a listener to the program, he's been on here many times. Paul Scharf is his name. He's got a ministry. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. Paul, welcome to the program today. Thanks, Jimmy. Great to be back with you. Yes, it's great to have you with us. I know that you are busy. You're speaking in Green Bay this weekend. You're a busy man, as we all are, going to places that God sets before us where people want to understand God's Word, God's plan, God's program. And uh, I sure appreciate what you do. Uh, How do people find your information? Jimmy, I'm a church ministries representative with the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry, and uh, I have all my ministry resources on sermonaudio.com at sermonaudio.com slash pscharf, P-S-C-H-A-R-F. And people are more than welcome to connect with me there, hear sermons and read articles, and I'd love to have them stop by and visit. Yes, and uh, quite often on our internet radio program, which a lot of people listen to, and that's how they uh, listen to. We're not trying to supersede or take the place of local radio stations, but sometimes uh, when when you're at home, people listen to it, and quite often we play your sermons, your teachings. I think that they're fantastic. You had a great section on Daniel, so I, I really appreciate your ministry, Paul, and I would encourage people to go there and listen at will if you you know, if you will, <laughs> when you want to. But uh, one of the men that we have on our program and, and uh, that dad used to have when uh, he would interview Dr. Wickham, Dr. John Wickham, right. uh, you were involved in his ministry. What was really the heart and focus of Dr. John Wickham? Oh, Jimmy, uh, Dr. Whitcomb, uh, of course, now with the Lord for three years, became my mentor, and I was incredibly blessed to uh, have that experience, that opportunity. At his heart, as you asked, Jimmy, it was, it w- I would have to say the key issue was he wanted to totally understand 
rightly divide mm. God's word and to take what he had received, those treasures that had been given to him by uh, his precious teachers, men that he dearly loved, and likewise hand them down to others who could teach as well. And of course, you know, that comes right out of Dr. Whitcomb's life verse, Second mm. Timothy 2.2. 2. The things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Wow, I love that. That uh, you know, your mentor was was Dr. Wickham. I hear that in your teaching, and uh, you can just as my mentor was my father. Uh, people, when they hear me, they hear a, a maybe a a, a a version of my father through our teaching, and that's what we are to do. We are to help others to become Christ-like and, you know, help them along the way. What uh, would you know, as you knew Dr. Wickham, how did it show through his study habits, his life, that that verse? Oh, Jimmy, his uh, study habits were um, maybe a little hard to define or emulate because uh, it was hard to tell when he started studying and stopped <laughs> studying. Yeah. His life was a life of... Uh, devoted to the Word. Um, I, I, let me back up for a second and say one of the reasons I chose the, the seminary that I attended was because I knew I would uh, have the opportunity to take classes there with Dr. Whitcomb, and they actually began the fall that I went to Faith Baptist Theological Seminary in Ankeny, Iowa in 1994. Mm. I ended up having 10 classes with Dr. Whitcomb there, and and as you said, it was 20 years ago this weekend, my wife and I visited the Whitcombs for the first time, and out of that came the opportunity to to serve with Dr. Whitcomb to assist him in his ministry. And I got to observe him in a lot of different contexts through the years. And I, for instance, came to find out at one point that uh, when he was, you know, back in his hotel room or wherever he was between uh, days of ministry, he wasn't sleeping all night. He was. Uh, he would get up in the middle of the night for several hours often and be studying the scriptures and preparing in his mind for what was to come the next day. Just th things like that, uh, Jimmy, that are just uh, almost incredible um, uh, to think of. Uh, I remember seeing him in his in his study at his desk, and it was it was uh, quite a amazing picture to behold he would have stacks of papers and books and magazines but of course he knew where every everything single thing was. that he needed was <laughs> yeah that that's a that's a great story and you know as we think about it and of course again we're talking about dr john wickham uh, he uh, for for 20 years paul you worked in his ministry alongside of him he was a teacher he worked with uh, answers in genesis correct yep he he did much teaching and various ministries in cooperation with, with Answers in Genesis, as well as, of course, Institute for Creation Research and, mm. and your ministry and, and many others. Yes. You know, and, and Paul, the reason, and folks, you might think, well, why are we talking about Dr. Wickham? Well, of course, he was a he was he set a great example of, uh, uh, in the faith for us as men as we are continuing along. But 
What do you think, Paul, that Dr. Wickham, uh, who was a great teacher of Bible prophecy, of the Bible in, in total, from Genesis to Revelation, yes. Alpha and Omega, he, he, what do you think he would want us to know uh, to do now if he were here? Well, Jimmy, uh, of course, it's been more than three years since he has passed to go to be with the Lord, and how incredibly, profoundly our world has changed in those three years. Mm. Um, by the way, I have to just insert this. You ask about his study habits, and the last time I ever saw Dr. Whitcomb in person was in the summer of 2018, and I will never forget, walking away, we had said our goodbyes, and of course, in typical Dr. Whitcomb style, he was he had already re- reverted back to his books and mm. to his desk. <laughs> <laughs> and so as we were walking out the door, I saw him and just, and just glanced at him for uh, a moment, and, uh, you know, realizing the significance, uh, perhaps, of that time, as it did turn out to be my last time seeing him on this earth, he had he was sitting at his desk, going through papers, uh, looking through various documents as if he were going to be in the classroom on Monday morning. Oh wow! Uh, and the last night that he was alive on this earth, Jimmy, before he died, he was working on a paper he was writing, hmm. uh, and he died that night in his sleep. Um, so those are a little bit more to give us a clue and insight into his into his mind and his heart. If he were here now to see the things that have happened since he's left us, I think he would be uh, absolutely astounded, and I think he would want us to be focusing much energy on preparing people, telling them about the Lord's soon return, uh, explaining the significance of the signs of the times and how we can certainly not set dates for the Lord's coming, but understand more about the times in which we live by looking ahead at the prophetic scriptures and seeing the the shadows of those events falling back in our time and becoming just prepared in every way and preparing those around us as God gives us opportunities to meet the Lord and to stand before him. Mm. Mm. Well, you've written and uh, you've been focusing on dispensationalism and i appreciate that about dr wickham and that what uh, and your understanding of what he would want us to know and to how we should be living our lives and this would be also the repeated message of many bible teachers and expositors of the faith and and as they understood god's word and uh so let's continue on let's continue on on the vein of which Dr. Wicked would want us to talk, which would be about dispensationalism. And what is dispensationalism, and why is it in decline? Well, you're you're right, first of all, Jimmy, about Dr. Whitcomb. He never wanted to be known simply as a creationist. He wanted to be known as a Bible teacher. And uh, he certainly dealt with prophecy and much with apologetics, and as you mentioned, with dispensationalism, which is Jimmy, I I believe the result of a literal interpretation of the Bible and then putting those results of our exegesis of the text, our literal interpretation of the text together in a system, and that system has come to be known dispensationalism, and the kernel of truth in that is that basically this, God has a program for the nation of Israel, and he has a distinct program for the church. 
and there is a continual distinction between those two peoples, Israel, the nation of Israel, and the church. And the church does not replace Israel, but God still has the future for Israel. He will fulfill every prophecy he's ever given, every promise he's ever made to the people of Israel. It will all come to pass still in the future, after the church age is complete, and we believe that ends with the rapture of the church. But I think there's lots of hope. Jimmy, you ask why is dispensationalism in decline today, and I think one of the reasons is because if dispensationalism comes to us as a result of a literal study of the Bible, mm-hmm. perhaps one of the reasons that dispensationalism is in decline is because we're not studying the Bible as much. Mm. And uh, that's, that's, again, what Dr. Whitcomb would advise. He would, in fact, he would put it something like this. Let's, let's do the impossible. Let's yes. open our Bibles and begin reading, begin studying, word upon word, line upon line, and going through the text and understanding what the Bible is literally teaching. And we could talk about all kinds of trends. And as you mentioned, I'm writing a series of articles currently called Where is Dispensationalism Going? And people can find those on my page at sermonaudio.com slash psharf, and they run in other places as well. And uh, I'm dealing with these questions to try to give hope, especially to younger people coming along who I believe need to be reinforced in their, in their uh, confidence that, yes, mm. the Bible rightly interpreted leads to the dispensational system of understanding. Well, Paul, you know, our time is short today, but let's look at this over maybe the next few weeks. Uh, Dispensationalism, talk about it and get a better understanding and how it fits into our lives practically and where we are, uh, where the church is and, and how it all works. Paul, thank you so much. Look forward to having you back next time. Thank you so much, Jimmy. Uh, God bless. And uh, I believe Dr. Whitcomb would be pleased with the things we've discussed here today. Amen. Amen. Folks, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, our Legacy Series with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr., along with my brother, Rick. We examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, we talked so much about Israel, and this coming week, you're going to be in Israel with a group. That's right, Jimmy. We've got a group, a senior trip of uh, 58 homeschoolers and their parents. So it's a, it's a pretty large group, and what a place to have a senior trip, huh? Going over to Israel, kind of the culmination of their Bible study and their homeschool program. It's going to be an exciting time. Do we have any other trips coming up this fall that we might be able to take people with us? We actually do, Jimmy, and if you're interested, please call our office, 423-825-6247, October 11th through the 23rd. We've got an Israel trip with a Jordan extension, and we also have a trip November 8th through the 17th, just a trip to Israel. And then, of course, next year we have several tours. If you're interested, call our office, but I'd love to talk to you about going to Israel, the greatest classroom in the world for studying Scripture. It is. You know, and there's a lot of people that go to Israel. We have a way of teaching, looking at Israel past, present, and future. So if you're interested in going with us, we'd love to have you go. Well, Rick, today on our Legacy Series, since we're covering dispensationalism on the program today, we're going to look at our new study on God's plan through the ages. 
God does have a plan for this world and we must understand his plan and our part in this plan. The way we come to an understanding of this plan is by a serious study of his word, which we will do in the next number of weeks on this program. The book of Genesis is where we'll start. The title of this study is The Beginning of Forever. We will look at the first 12 chapters of Genesis in the next couple of weeks. These chapters cover the first 2,000 years of history. That is, if you believe, as, as we do, in a young earth theory. So we're going to begin our study today with that thought, and we'll go to the first chapter of Genesis, Dr. Jimmy D. Young, and the Legacy Series. A literal interpretation of the uh, creation account in Genesis chapter 1 would say it's a young earth, approximately 6,000 years old, and it was created in six 24-hour days. So it does make a difference. Listen, if you make it an old earth concept based upon an allegorical approach or a non-literal or a spiritualized interpretation of Genesis chapter 1, you basically do away with salvation and the capability of being saved. Because of the fact if death has already happened over these millions of years to bring us to a place where man comes into existence, then what is the result of sin? Not death anymore. That's already been in place for many years. It does make a difference. It is important we choose the right approach to understanding history. And so what I'm going to do this week with you is look at God's plan through the ages. This is key. You may be in a church that is moving towards, and many churches, fundamental churches, who have held to a dispensational approach of understanding the Word of God have moved to the covenant approach. Now, again, I know those are man-made theologies, but just the concept of how you approach the study of the Word of God. If you believe that redemption is the ultimate goal, you can do anything to get somebody saved. But if you believe glorifying Jesus Christ is our ultimate purpose, it causes us to live right. It does make a difference. Let me show you by application. Go to Genesis chapter 1. I want to take a moment here with you and look through the first 12 chapters of the book of Genesis. Because this will set the basis. These first 12 chapters of the book of Genesis lay out for us, and it's very plain as we look at it, lay out for us all of history and how it's ultimately going to come to an end. God has a plan. God brought man into existence. You know what God did the very first instant that we read about here in the Word of God? He brought time into existence. Time, what did he say? In the beginning. That begins time. And time continues on, now almost 6,000 years. It'll go for 7,000 years. And at the end of time, which is the time of the great white throne judgment. You remember Revelation chapter 20, verse 11? It says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven had fled away. Now, that is the end of time. When it's talking about the earth and the heaven fleeing from in front of Jesus, who will be the judge on the great white throne judgment, it's referring back to 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10, where it says, this earth, these heavens will burn up, 
And the book of Isaiah, chapter 65 and 66, the Lord says, I will create. It's bara in Hebrew, the same word used in Genesis chapter 1. I will create new heavens and a new earth. And so time is in place only from in the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, all the way over to Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, at the great white throne judgment. You know, I'm sure you're aware of it. On May the 21st, 2011, that was to have been the end of the world. Judy and I were out in uh, California, in Los Angeles, where I thought that was the end of the world. But anyway, we were there and had been a ministry. And all day Saturday, May the 21st, we were doing everything we were going to be doing and just watching and seeing and waiting to see if it's going to be the end of the world. Next morning, the 22nd, got up, went to the church where I was speaking, got there very early because we wanted to make sure everybody was there and the end of the world hadn't happened. They were all there. Later that afternoon, Harold Camping uh, came on the air and he said, folks, I miscalculated. I recalculated. It's now going to be October the 21st. I think October the 21st has passed, but we're now in 2012 and hang on for December the 21st, 2012, when the Mayan Indian calendar runs out, and that's the end of the world. Now, uh, get ready for some blockbuster movies coming out of Hollywood, television programs, already primetime specials on ABC, NBC, and CBS, talking about the end of the world. The problem is they never read the manual to help them know when the end of the world was going to be. Harold Campion was only 1,007 years off base. Go back to study, buddy. The end of the world has not happened yet. It will not happen for a 1,007 years. The rapture of the church, the seven-year tribulation, the return of Jesus Christ, the 1,000-year millennial kingdom, then the great white throne judgment. And because now I have taken a literal interpretation of the Word of God, I can understand those guys were off base. Do you know from the body of Christ, Harold Camping raised $8 million the last week before May the 21st to help promote this heresy from the body of Christ. Should have known by looking at the Word of God. So in Genesis chapter 1, we see what happens here. In the beginning, the beginning, time and space were created immediately. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Amazing. This is a literal account of how it all came into being. God has only written one book. He used some 40 men over some 1,500 years to write 66 books about what he wanted us to know, about history, his story. And he used Moses to write the account for us. Six 24-hour days. How do I come with that? Well, I compare it with what the Lord gave to the Jewish people there on Mount Sinai called uh, the law, the Torah, and in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 11, he says, I created the heavens and the earth and all that is within them in six days. Now, just prior to that, he was exhorting the Jewish people to rest on the seventh day as he did after creating the earth and all that is in it and the heavens and everything else in six 24-hour days. He wasn't exhorting the Jewish people to rest for a million years. He was exhorting them to rest for a 24-hour period of time. And so when you look at the account in the book of Genesis, chapter 1 of creation, you have to approach it from a literal perspective. 
when you look at it, you see that they were six days, and, and, and in the Jewish day, it begins at night. The night and the day were the first day. Look at exactly what it says right here as we study the Word of God. Verse 5, and the evening and the morning were the first day, and he lays it out. Look at verse 8, and God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. Look at verse 13, in the evening and the morning were the third day. Yom, Y-O-M, is the word for day. You know that probably because you remember Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. Yom is the word day in Hebrew. When it has a numerical adjective before it, it's talking about a 24-hour day. Search the word of God. Go to Strong's Concordance. Look up the word day. Look up the word yom. Only is it referring to a 24-hour day when it has that numerical adjective before it. So Genesis chapter 1 is the account of creation. Chapter 2 of the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis is talking to us about these creative activities that took place, but it is also referring to us the information about all the details that would have happened. Chapter 2, we see in verse 8 how God planted a garden called the Garden of Eden. We see where that was located. We'll talk about that a bit more maybe in our study. And then when you come over here to uh, verse 18, notice chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helpmate for him. Verse 19, I love this passage of Genesis chapter 2. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air, and he brought them into Adam to see what he would call them. So the name of every single animal that God had created, he brought into the Garden of Eden, and he told Adam, hey, you name the animals. By the way, he had not brought woman into existence yet. This is the afternoon of the sixth day of creation. All the animals have been created in the morning of the sixth day of creation. He brings them into the Garden of Eden. He says, Adam, look for your helpmate here. Adam did not have a distraction of a woman. I'm sorry, girls, but you do distract us. Adam was there. He was going to come to an understanding of the glory of the Lord. He was going to look at creation. How do I know he would understand the glory of the Lord? Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord and his handiwork declares the glory of the Lord. So Adam is learning how to recognize the glory of the Lord. He names all the animals. When the Lord comes back, said, did you find a helpmate? No, I didn't find one. Well, I'll make one. He reaches in, grabs a rib, and makes woman. Thus then has he established the garden where they were going to live. He establishes animals and when their names on the earth and there's no, no helpmate there. And he then brings into existence of the very important institution called marriage, and he brings that about. Verse 23, and Adam said, this is now my bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And so we see that that is the case. This is all in Genesis chapter 2. If you're not interpreting this literal, where can we get the idea of how animals came into existence and indeed how they got their names? And where did we get the institution of marriage that were so uh, important as, as far as our society is concerned? We come to chapter 3 of the book of Genesis. In chapter 3, we see the fall of man. Chapter 1, creation. Chapter 2, the special effects of creation. Chapter 3, the fall of man. We see Satan's subtle strategy moving into position. 
I'll go back in a moment and we'll look at Genesis chapter 1 and we'll see how God brought into existence a kingdom. And he gave dominion over that kingdom to Adam and Eve. Satan had been given the place of prominence. Do you not remember Ezekiel chapter 28? When God created Lucifer, the morning star, the most beautiful of all the created beings, the place of prominence was given to Lucifer. He was above all of creation, looking over all of it. And then all of a sudden, a couple of days later, in fact, Lucifer was created on the first day of creation. On the sixth day of creation, he brings man into existence, lower than him in creation, and he makes him the king or the ruler, or giving him dominion over all creation. And I believe that is what may have been the reason for Lucifer's rebellion against God. Lucifer had the place of prominence until man was created. Pride brought down this most prominent angel created. The fall of Satan some 2,000 years ago does set in motion the plan of God throughout the ages. Next week, we'll continue our study through the first 12 chapters of Genesis. This is a very important study that sets up our understanding of Bible prophecy for the end of times. Please join us next week. I'm Todd Morris for Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Over half the population in Sudan is now in need of emergency aid. Fighting yesterday in the capital Khartoum broke yet another truce agreement to let in humanitarian relief. It's disrupted national stability and operations, and many are fleeing the country altogether. Ed Weaver was spoken worldwide. We're hearing from some of our partners and teammates in Egypt that live in Aswan, just north of the border, that are saying there's at least a million refugees in Aswan, and Aswan is overrun. You know, they don't have the capacity to handle that kind of an influx, and yet it seems like everybody that is in Sudan that's trying to avoid the conflict is escaping many times to the north, attempting to get into Egypt. Please pray for gospel opportunities to Sudanese refugees. One unreached people group in Chad, a country in Central Africa, is known for its violence against Christians. Unfolding words, Dane Skelton. Reaching out to this group has a lot of risks attached to it, but our friend who we call Jeremiah and his team in the spirit of God and with great boldness, decided to take a, a very long journey and share open Bible stories with this group. Tribal custom says every new visitor must visit the village chief or king first. The king of this people group had a scary reputation. He was adept at using occult powers. He would manipulate people using those forces. Thankfully, the Lord protected Jeremiah and his team. Find out how at missionnews.org. It asks God to continue watching over Jeremiah, his team, and their families. Mission Network News is a listener-supported service of One Way Ministries. Slavic Gospel Association makes available the free book, Much Prayer, Much Power. Get your free copy when you click the banner at missionnews.org. <music> Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, uh, again, a fantastic program today and uh, key thoughts on what we covered today. Well, certainly, Jimmy, there's a lot of key thoughts. One thing 
that I thought was very interesting is you started off talking about dispensationalism. And as we put our program together, we have a framework, and that's what dispensationalism is, is a framework for which we can understand what God's plan is throughout the ages. But you look at that, we have take that framework, we know what God said is going to happen in the future, we know what the Bible says is going to take place, and then we look at these current events as they go on and we see what is taking place in the world and how it is kind of foreshadowing what God says is going to happen in the end times, doesn't it? Which sure does. Let me remind you again, the two distinctive of dispensationalism, and I, we're going to cover over the next couple of weeks why dispensationalism is so important. Paul Scharf started on it, and of course the Legacy Series. I love the fact that we're going to start, uh, and this is an old series, but this is something that our father taught about dispensationalism, that God has a plan, and it starts in the book of Genesis and goes to the book of Revelation. And the two distinctives of dispensationalism, a view of the uniqueness of Israel as it as separate from the church and God's program, and then a consistently literal interpretation of Scripture, especially Bible prophecy. And so by looking at God's Word, we do know that God has a plan for all of mankind, and that plan plays out in Scripture. Some key thoughts that I thought of today's program, Rick, uh, when you asked Ken Timmerman and you brought up the story of Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, in the tunnels. You and I have been in those tunnels probably hundreds of times, literally hundreds of times, taking people through them. That was a great uh, statement that the prime minister made. It was, and it was a reaction to what uh, the Palestinian Authority president had said the previous week. Abu Mazen had said that they've been digging for you know years now, and they haven't found any connection to the land for the Jewish people. So Benjamin Netanyahu took his cabinet down into those tunnels to the rocks that we've stood next to many times. That King Solomon, the Jewish king that built the temple there, and uh, he stood with his cabinet members and said, we have been here for 3,000 years, we'll be here for 3,000 years more. What a statement by Benjamin Netanyahu. You know, I remember one of our videos that we did with Dad, and we were standing down by the rocks, and the tangible fact that we have that, you know, that God exists is the uniqueness of the Jewish people and its history and touching those rocks. And that's why we feel one of the most important, you know, in Israel, one of the most book sites are the Western Wall tunnels where you can go back to that foundation, to the areas where the streets at the time of Jesus and even before that, King Solomon cut the stones that were there. So, you know, when we touch that, we take people there, we talk to them about the uniqueness of the Jewish people. You can't deny the fact that God created and uniquely picked the Jewish people to have a role in his program. And it has been throughout history that the Jewish people are going to be there. Uh, I really like the fact, uh, again, too, that we covered with Rob Congdon, uh, and really all of our broadcast partners, Rick, but we were looking at some other aspects of God's sovereignty. 
We were, Jimmy, and we talk about Ezekiel 38 quite often. As we often talk about the details of what's going to take place during Ezekiel 38 with the nations, and we talk about the alignment of the nations and them coming together. But it was an interesting take that we got from Dr. Congdon because he was looking at it as an example of God's sovereignty as he's had a plan from the very beginning. He has a plan for the saved. He has a plan for the unsaved. He has a plan, and he's not finished with the Jewish people, with the with the people of Israel. He has a plan in place in the beginning for them. And then, of course, at the very end, he talked about when God says he's going to do something something, he does do it. So looking at it from that perspective and God's sovereignty, no matter what takes place in the world, no matter uh, you know what Satan's plans are to try to change those uh, designs, to try to change those plans in the world, we know that it's sovereign from the very beginning when God knew what was going to happen before time began, before the Garden of Eden and going through, we'll see what is going to take place in the eternity future. You know, As we cover dispensational theology today in our program, it teaches that there are two distinct peoples of God, Israel and the church. Dispensationalists believe that salvation has always been by grace through faith alone in God in the Old Testament and specifically in God the Son in the New Testament. Dispensationalists hold that the church has not replaced Israel in God's program and that the Old Testament promises to Israel have not been transferred to the church. And dispensationalism teaches that the promises God made to Israel in the Old Testament for land, many descendants, and blessings will be ultimately fulfilled in the 1,000-year period spoken of in Revelation chapter 20. Dispensationalists believe that just as God in this age, focusing his attention on the church, he will again in the future focus his attention on Israel. And that's Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, and Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. So Rick, as we look at today's program, one of the things that we do as we understand the Bible to be organized into those seven dispensations, innocence, conscience, human government, uh, promise, law, grace, and the millennial kingdom, we do see that there is a future. And that's why we focus on these events, because these events are leading us up to that next event, which will be the rapture of the church in the future. So as we are looking at this, you have the rapture of the church, then the beginning of that seven-year period of time, the tribulation, Then Christ returns to the earth, and that's when the thousand-year millennial kingdom will come into place, Revelation chapter 20. It's important that we understand our part that we play in God's program and the part that God's program plays in the world so that we can understand the urgency of the hour. Rick, thanks so much for doing the program with me today. Thanks for covering and doing the hard work, and uh, looking forward to being with you again next week. Looking forward to being with you next week when I'm in Israel, Jimmy. Yes, that is true, Rick. Thanks so much. Folks, with everything that we are watching today and as we look at these reports and you hear this, remember, dispensationalism as a system results in a premillennial interpretation of Christ's second coming and usually a pre-tribulational interpretation of the rapture. Seeing everything that we have seen today, we know that the rapture could happen at any moment. Let's keep looking up until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today.